Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in July of 2017. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Lindy Davies. Mr. Davies was the program director of the Henry George Institute and editor of the George's Journal. He is the author of The Sassafras Crossing and The Alodia Scrapbook, both of which are fiction novels that explore the topic of development on a local, more personal level. In addition to his novels, he was an editor of the Mason Gaffney Reader and creator of Henry George's abridged version of The Science of the Political Economy, one of George's seminal works. A lover of all things Henry George, Lindy spent his life promoting George's values and spreading his word. Mr. Davies unfortunately passed away in 2019. May he rest in peace. Together, we discuss the progress Georgists have made in promoting Georgist values, how monopolies act as extractive institutions within the economy, and why a systemic view is better for solving economic quandaries than a micro-based approach. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. You know, it all started with his book, Henry George's book, Progress of Poverty, which sold, I guess, at best I can uh, figure, around 5 million copies in his day, which was a huge amount to, uh, of sales for, for one book. And of course, the message we know, uh, the, the key to the progress of poverty uh, proposition that he mentioned is, uh, is the land rents essentially being monopolized by private parties. It caught on. It made a stir. He was, he was, he was famous worldwide. Marx was aware of him. And, and then, of course, as time has gone on, uh, the word and uh, his uh, efficacy, the efficacy of his message sort of petered out. I mean, he's still alive today. We're Georgist. And, uh, and so we, we, we believe in the relevancy of, of his message. But your comments on uh, why it kind of faded. And of course, Mason Gaffney wrote a book, essentially trying to describe what happened uh, to uh, Henry George's message and how it was co-opted uh, and conflated into a two-factor model of uh, economics rather than three. So with that, perhaps you could give us your comments on how you see it. That's true. And Mason Gaffney's thesis is very interesting and I think persuasive that a lot of the economic uh, analysis that came to be called neoclassical economics uh, was set up in in resistance in a way to uh, in an attempt to turn the academy away from George's ideas, and it, we've inherited an economics profession in which economics is supposed to be a value-free science. There's not supposed to be anything um, normative in the way we do economics. It's all supposed to be data-driven, et cetera. Now, I think that's essentially, and I think Mason Gaffney would agree that that's essentially a disingenuous formulation in the first place, because to say there should be no values in your study is itself a statement of values. Um, and so I, I think that uh, a lot of the field of neoclassical economics, the setting up of two factors, was just a strategy that didn't really have much um, conceptual validity. At the time, uh, the original efforts by Eli and um, and Clark and those folks, those founders of neoclassical economics, to subsume land under the factor of capital, was really just a sleight of hand. It was a way to take land out of the conversation entirely, and people fell for that over the years. But it really led us to some very absurd economic policies. Um, so, and I think I think that's really unfortunate. You know, the idea that um, that land is not an important factor of production, or the idea that over the years land has become less important because of the um, the urbanization of our economy or the influence of technology, just really has no validity at all. And anyone who's involved in real estate knows that, as you, Andrew, keep saying in your videos 
uh, we're fine in New York because we've got all the land value concentrated right here. We know how important land is. Um, so I think that the economics profession for many years in many basic textbooks, you'll read, for example, that land rent is 2% of, uh, of gross domestic product, right? Mm-hmm. Or something, a statement along like those yeah. lines. Which is absolute nonsense, of course. Well, we're going to re- we're going to revise that, Lindy. Uh, uh, you know, we're today we're just jumping from uh, Georgia's time until today, and then we'll go back. Uh, <clears throat> the fact is that if you account for land rents and the related cash flows uh, of uh, of that, you're just on land rent and cash flows from from uh, land rents. Uh, not the land rent itself, but the the structures on land getting such favorable treatment, uh, along with the uh, the power of the land to 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 create a monopoly, you're looking at 15 to 18 percent of GNP just before you get started, and then when, and we're not talking about taxing the beds or taxing uh, taxing resources, and we're not even talking about tax uh, you know taxing other monopolies like the financial monopoly, things that basically pivot off, off, off land rents because land rents are so powerful and so consistent. So <clears throat> to subsume uh, uh, a discussion of George in, in, uh, under he's only 2% of the problem is, is certainly disingenuous. And I think more and more as becoming, becoming very relevant. Just to give you an idea of how relevant this is, uh, Yanis Varoufakis, the Greek... Uh, former prime minister, uh, finance minister, has formed a progressive party in, uh, in Europe. And he's just issued a white paper around that party, making land value taxation a key part of his proposition, calling for uh, a very unusual kind of land tax, a land tax on, on uh, land with industrial and commercial property. He's exempting, he's exempting uh, agricultural property. And he's also inverting uh, the tax by the amount of people you have on location. The more people you have on location working, he'll reduce your tax by a certain amount. But he's driving the proposition of uh, bringing the European community back to life with a land tax. And it, it's in the wind. And, uh, and I would say that if you looked at Monopoly fairly and squarely, and we're, we're trying to do that, we'll have a paper out next week actually, that uh, we think monopoly in all its forms, but primarily driven by land as, as a basis, will approach almost 25% of the GNP, if you fairly count it. That's a significant number. And it's a number left alone, and it drives a lot of cash and a hell of a lot of lending. And a lot of lending creates more monies to buy more properties and continue the bidding up cycle of property. So. George is more relevant today than he ever was. Go ahead. Oh, I think that's very true. And, you know, I'm hesitant to try to put a number on it because I don't think the data is there at the national level. I just really don't think it is. Um, well, let me just, inter- let me just interject that. The, if you follow all the land studies you can get, and you can go to a city, a state, a country, there's a converging a number of studies that would allow us, I think, to say that if you wanted a good idea of what the land values were in a capital, in an industrial capitalist country, they're approximating the GNP of that country. And I think that that's going to be not an iron law because <clears throat> that depends on what part of the real estate cycle you're in. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's, got, it's got a lot of, uh, you know, oscillation there. But if the steady state average You'll pretty, fi- you'll pretty much find out that economic activity, of course, drives the rents. And some, for some reason, somehow, the land, rent, the land itself, is, uh, is the value is a function of, of, uh, well, of that. Certainly, it, it makes sense to me that those two numbers are related. I don't really see the logic for equating them. And it's an if empir- you empirical are to take, fact. Well, all right, if you were to take... Um, to say that you're saying gross national product in a year yes. equals land equals land value. Yes. Right. Approximately. Now, if you were to take a reasonable rate of return on land value, which would be what five percent or Let's so, say right? It's, it's approximating six and a half to seven percent as we talk uh, over over time. It's been been something like that. Well, 
I would venture to suggest that the, that the number would be larger than that because of the logic that suggests that the rent of land would be a sufficient amount of resources to fund our need for infrastructure and services at a national level. Um, we're talking, all, we're talking debate, only land. We're not talking resources. We're not talking spectrum. I'm we're, talking about land and the economic definition okay. as natural opportunity. Then, then, then uh, we can't put a number. We can't put a number on that. We can only kind of put a number okay, on land I, itself. Okay, but I'm just, I'm just suggesting that I think the GNP number is low, because if, if that equals the value of land, then a natural rate of return on that amount would be far less than the amount of revenue that we would need to run the true, run the economy. True, true. And I imagine that if that amount of land value were collected in some form of levy at some level, mm. that there would still be quite a quite a lot of land value left. Mm. And of course, if all the rent of land were collected for public revenue, there wouldn't be any selling price of land left, true, theoretically. True. So I, I don't, I, I suspect that number, I suspect it as being rather low in terms of an estimate of natural, mm. or national land value, mm. but be that as it may, I just really don't think we have the data. And, I, and I'm not sure at this juncture in history that trying to find the data is our, is our best play in terms of advocacy okay, because big... various vague statistics that are collected for other reasons that have some relevance to land value can be, can be disputed, can be widely disputed. I think. Well, so so um, I'm not clear on how given the state of investigation of the data right now, we could um, come up with a credible okay. estimation well, of national I, I will, land value. I, I will I, I've, I've looked at this a lot okay. in terms of New York City. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, the urban centers, particularly New York City, has the most valuable land in the country, possibly the world at this point, right? And there is a lot of sales data and all of the public assessment and, and zoning and all of the data on New York City real estate is uh, transparently open to the public. So it's, it's, quite, it's quite possible to study it in some detail. And what I've found is that it's very difficult to come up with an, with an accurate estimate even of the land value in New York City. It's way, way more than the city says it is on the assessment rolls, obviously, true, true, by true. a fact about six or eight or something. Converging uh, studies on Manhattan would show it to be uh, approximating a trillion dollars. Is that your, your? Uh, that's what I've read. Yes, yes. and okay. I think that's and I think that's a reasonable estimate. A study that I did that a few years ago that was attempting to totally lowball all of the estimates just to make sure that uh, it couldn't. I no one could say it was too much. Had the value of all of New York City land at about 1.2 trillion, yeah, but we, I, like I said, that was that. very low. And the estimates, some one study is saying 1.4 trillion for Manhattan. Mm. Um, so I think the variation is quite large, and that's even for New York City, which is one of the most studied. But that and that takes into account these studies in markets right. in the world, and the one in which more data is available. But these studies so go over time. I think it's better for us. I I would suggest that it's better for us in trying to get these ideas to cross it, across and trying to show their relevance mm. to work conceptually with how these economic factors fit together and, and to use a bit more of a deductive process. Now, I realize that there's there's some risks in that. Absolutely. Um, it's a tough one. But as we, as we try to have recourse to data that isn't there, I feel like there's really a lot of risks in that, too. All right. Let me just let me just finish that that, that thought on the on the data. Yes. Uh, I think the converging studies, and there are five or six of them, kind of nip around the $1 trillion mark for Manhattan. And this is over a 10-year period, so that you're getting Manhattan in an up-and-down cycle, so that you've got the cycle swings alone would, would account for variation. But it's pretty clear that the city national product is approximating a $1 trillion also. And if you look at small studies, small states, large, and we've kind of collected that data, we would say, we are willing to say the converging number is almost an equality. What, well, I don't want to okay. say that that's, it doesn't work as it's a rule empirical. of thumb. It's I don't want to say that's number. nonsense. Okay. I'm just not quite ready to rely on it yet as, as, a, as, a, as an equivalent. Okay, as a proxy, though, you can then look at that. And then you can follow the knock-on uh, monopolies that really kind of are based on the fact that Land is the cornerstone of lending for banks. 
And if you follow through all the monopolies that are created downstream from the land monopoly, for example, a financial monopoly today, uh, patents, spectrum, and all of that, you now start to, uh, start to increase the, the monopoly revenues, which are another form of the land rent. You know, it really didn't exist in George's time. George didn't have a fiat currency, he had a gold-backed currency. George had a government that was only spending 4 or 5% of the GNP. But now, if you look at fairly at all the sources of monopoly, they converged to 25% of the GNP. And that's not a small number. And that's a number that's in the spirit of Henry George to isolate and find. And I think we can, we can do wonders by saying that land may not be the total monopoly, may well but it's, be. But it's may the well key be true. one. It's the key one. Go ahead. I would suggest that that number tends to downplay the importance of land rent and resource rent. Remember, when I say land rent, I'm talking that's about the economic right. definition of land, all natural opportunities. Yeah. Um, but, of course, location is the biggest component of that. Sure. I would say that uh, that number that pulls together, your, you know, you're calling the other or the subsidiary monopolies, uh, downplays the importance of, of land rent in the real economy. I, I, I'm hesitant to make that a primary argument. Well, the problem, because I think that the land, that the the natural opportunities at the base of the economy is far more important than that would seem to imply. One of my favorite phrases from Henry George from Protection of Free Trade, uh, which I, I think seems more more apropos all the time, is that the land monopoly is the robber that takes all that is left. And if you go about removing other opportunities for economic rent in the economy by virtue of uh, laws that restrict competition or trusts or banking privileges mm. or various things like that, you end up strengthening the land monopoly. That's true. That's and there's true. the well-established principle uh, that taxes, tax revenues tend to come from land at rents. the expense of sure, rent in sure. the economy. That's okay? clear. So, so, if we, and so I think we would have to look, if we want to predict the effects of a Georgist reform on society, we'd have to look at those dynamic factors as well. We'd have to look at how various markets change as revenue starts coming from this more healthy source, for example. We're, we're looking um, at that. And so, we're, we're and so that. I, also, and I also believe that because of this, that due to this, that any effort to assess and estimate the level of current land rent in the economy has very limited, if not absolutely no relevance, to what we could expect the land rent to be in a Georgist economy because of the changes across the board on incentives that would happen. Well, that's so I, I'm very suspicious of the relevance or the need of attempts to assess the current level of land rent or land value in the economy, number one, because I don't see any reliable sources of data, and number two, because it doesn't tell us much about what kind of economy we would have were we to actually bring this reform okay. into effect. All right, let me just interject there. Of course, the knock-on effects of a change to a pure Georgia system can only be uh, assumed or or gamed or, or, or hypothecated. We just don't know. But I think by not teasing out monopoly and monopoly from that, we're always relegated to that 2% number and it's dismissed before you even have a chance to play the game. So I would say as a strategy, we're better off forcing all monopoly into the opening, proving it's, it's derived ultimately from the land monopoly and at least you've got a respectable number that people will pay attention to. So it's a well, strategy. I'm difference. not sure all monopolies derive from the no. uh, from the land monopoly. Not all, I think, but uh, you know, many there there are many privileges that are simply granted simply by government. Granted, that's true. That's uh, true. You know, and I think those things then there may be good arguments for having those things. You know, you can people can differ about the efficacy of patents, for example. Yeah, I, I understand. Um, and that. not not every monopoly. There are some natural monopolies that simply exist because roads. There's one right place to put a road. You know, and there's one efficient but system those, of power. Those have always been with us and have been able to be handled. The big monopolies are real estate and finance, and they're, they're kind of interrelated. And I think you'd see the bulk of all the damage done in, that, in, in those areas. And so my, Absolutely. my, my strategy uh, and, and, would be to make that explicit, even though we couldn't answer the knock-on effects of 
taxing it directly to see what the macro effects would be. So I think we have a difference only in that uh, I'd rather expose the possibilities of a large number than be pinned to a low number and then arguing theoretically that it would be a lot better if you just tried it because no one's going to try it. That's, that's I think, the well, problem. Okay, fair enough. Okay. I mean, I think the low number, the 2% number is just, I think we can show in many ways that that's utter nonsense. We can make a very credible case for that. I don't think we have to accept that number. Um, and we don't have to have hard and fast data-driven numbers to refute that. I think we can just show that that's absurd on the face of it. Okay. The 2% number, for example, in basic textbooks, uh, I've read in a couple places, the 2% number is considered land in only its original natural fertility. It doesn't explicitly leaves out any consideration of location value. And that's where the 2% number came in. Well, I would argue Because, that... of course, neoclassical economics wants to put the rental value of land, the return to land as real estate assets, etc., in the category of profits and entrepreneurship. Okay. And so it, it, it can't allow itself to have what we would consider to be to be a proper economic definition okay. of well, land. What they do, is a, is a, as a matter of fact, is they'll take rental income and they'll take all the expenses from it and uh, they'll call that operating income and the net they'll only count as rent. So that's a very small number at the end of that process anyway. Exactly, okay. and that's where that number, from the national income right, statistics, right. that's so where that's, that number derived, yes. That's a, so we know that's a, a, a masking uh, number. But uh, real another consideration is, do we need a GNP, uh, 25% of the GNP for government if we had a Georgia system. I mean, taking your cue about uh, knock-on effects, efficiencies, and so forth, uh, why would we need a number that big in the first place? Oh, I think it's very likely that we wouldn't. I think it's very likely that we wouldn't. And one thing that about the logic of Henry George's remedy that appeals to uh, conservatives and appeals to libertarians and people who like federalism and small government is the fact that, of course, land value and resource rental values are assessed locally because they have to be because that's where the land is. And so it seems very likely that one key feature of a Georgia system would be that money would flow rather than from the central government to the locate to the states and to the towns it would flow from the towns and the states up to the central level and so the bias in government would be more toward local 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 schools for example i think in a georgia system would not be starved for funds the way they are now and they wouldn't have to depend on the whims of federal education policy to, to meet their teachers salaries uh, and i think that 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 would be a profound change in the way we look at things and it would end up being facilitating a smaller and more efficient government. And you can find many other arguments in progress and poverty for how government would be simplified. But um, I think that this flow from local to central rather than the other way around, which we have now in a rather dysfunctional way, is a very important element. Okay. Well, I've read the argument, you know, flowing to the top would make some sense, but flowing to the top, if you have Joseph Stalin as the ultimate rent collector, is a scary thing indeed. You could argue that Stalin collected all the rents in the Soviet Union, and not much uh, good came of that. Uh, do you have any fear yeah, of that? Yeah, my point was that there would be more power at okay. the local level. Um, and yes, you're right, and you, you bring up a, a very interesting point when you talk about a, a despotic or, or a mm. government that our colleague Gordon, Gordon Abiyama has brought out in his discussion of Nigeria, which I think is fascinating and chilling, and that is that Nigeria, of course, gets almost all of its revenue from oil royalties. And therefore, Nigeria has on the revenue side kind of a Georgist economy. They collect resource rents for their public revenue. The problem is that their government is so corrupt and so unresponsive to the people's needs that it doesn't matter, that they just collect all the rent and, and spend it however they want. Um, so no, the, the revenue side of the Georgist argument, the single tax, isn't enough. You also, I think, need to have a democracy. Okay. You need to have a functioning democracy. But uh, we do what we can. Okay, let's look at the one of the big uh, bogeymen of uh, 
of our philosophy, of course, is as soon as you tell a homeowner about we're going to do it all on land rents, uh, you immediately get a like, oh my God, my house, that's my only, my only net, my only saving, really. What do you, what do you say to people when you're confronted with that particular fear? I mean, that's a big, a big fear in this country. 80, you know, something like 65% of the people own their own homes. You're going to take my, you're going to tax my, my home and I'm not going to have that. I'm not going to have any value or, what do I do? And of course, absolutely. And the yeah. thing that appreciates when we expect our home to appreciate over time is the land, yeah. obviously. And people aren't stupid. They realize that at some level. That's not an, that's not an easy one. I think there's, there's a local argument that people make with some success. And then I think there is a root systemic argument that can't be avoided. The local argument, of course, is that it's possible to implement Georgia's policies gradually, by slowly shifting taxes away from buildings and onto land in such a way that a majority of the homeowners in any given city will actually pay less tax. Because the people who will have substantially higher bills are people who are, are uh, withholding land and using large areas of land like car lots and uh, various uh, big box stores and things that use a lot of urban land. So that's one way you can make the argument locally. You can make the gradual shift, and that's been done, for example, in the Pennsylvania cities right, right, right. and in some other jurisdictions. Uh, of course, that's difficult to do because that's only politically popular as long as it continues to benefit the average homeowner. Mm -hmm. If it starts to bite into their house value, they might they might get a little iffy about it. Okay. But it's it's always bothered me, and I've never come up with a really good answer to it, but it's always bothered me to see how people scream bloody murder if you expect to take a little bit of their house value away in taxes. But every year they pay thousands of dollars in federal income taxes. Uh, if we talk about taking what's mine, about confiscating my wealth, why are people, why, why do people accept that? Now I think one example is that, well, we figure that's just the way the system works. Most working people pay their income taxes in payroll deductions, and they don't see it going as it goes. It's just part of the ongoing thing. As a self-employed person, I don't have that luxury. I have to write a check every April, and it's a big bite. Um, it might be better if more people had to pay their income taxes that way. They might realize the true extent of what they're being charged. Um, however, I think that people have inherited a sense of how we own things and how we produce wealth that has really kind of turned the economy into a casino. I mean, most people do not expect to get ahead by working and producing in the economy. That's true. Most people expect to get ahead if they ever can by winning the lottery in some form. Okay. And for most homeowners, you know, the 65%, I think currently of American mm. families who own their own homes or at least have some equity in their homes, that lottery ticket is their house. And that's why I think they're so resistant to anything that could threaten that, because that's the only way they see that they might have a chance of getting that's it. That's true. I think that's um, very true. And I, and I think that's that's it's a very unfortunate thing about the, the way we've been taught about our economy. Um, and I don't know how you I don't I don't know how we make inroads into that except by trying to educate people. Now, our motto at the Henry George Institute at our website is you can understand economics. And we try to sell a product that is a, is a form of empowerment education for people. Um, we're not making great headway with this, but it's it's the market niche that we're trying to fill and we're filling it as best we can. Yes, you are. Uh, I think that it's we have to start somewhere, but we have to make people understand the, the implications of, a, of an economy in which most people have just decoupled working from the rewards of work. Yeah. And that's exactly what we have right now. Okay. Good point. I want to ask you, going back over history, have there been any countries that have even partially adopted a Georgia system enough to give us an idea of its efficacy? Would there be, would, you know, what comes to mind is Singapore and Taiwan. Are those... Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly. Examples for you of what could be in a Georgia Well, system. yes, Singapore and Taiwan and Hong Kong. Hong yeah. Kong is probably the most shining example. Mm. 
because of, I guess, I don't know this real well, but the an accident of history that left the land in the in the hands of the government and leased out to users, and I think that was true in Singapore as well, uh, at the end of the British control over Hong right, Kong. That's correct. And uh, uh, Andrew Purvis, a British writer, uh, wrote a book about the uh, transportation system in Hong Kong, which is fascinating. Uh, basically, the Hong Kong government has used land speculation to finance a state-of-the-art subway system. Mm. They have acquired land where they plan to build a station out, out, out expanding at the edge at the current market price. And they have borrowed uh, against the appreciated value of this land, which they expect to happen once they build the railroad out to that. And they've used this value capture scenario to fund their, their transit system. Now, that's not exactly what a Georgist would want, but it's an example of the kind of power that you can find in the land I, if you, I, I if you that, put that on the table as part of your public policy. I, I think that's extended to their uh, housing uh, projects also. I think that that's they, right. yes. they fully, pretty much fully funded housing on the same, uh, same basis. And you don't consider yes, that they, a, an atypical example. The fact that they're an island economy really in and of itself shouldn't mean that much. Or in fact, it's a good example because you could argue, why don't people run from that? It's just an island. Why don't they just run away if they didn't like it? So they stay there. Of course, the argument is the runaway argument in the United States. But if they stay put in Hong Kong, why wouldn't they stay put in New York and, and, and the United States? So. That would be. Well, uh, they, they do pretty much. A lot of people want to come to New York and the United States, um, and you know you can in, you can envision. Uh, Fred Harrison has just come out with a book Beyond Brexit, right, right, good uh, book. in which he he lays out a scenario for how Britain can actually profit from Brexit because it can institute a sensible public revenue policy, which it should have had all along. And which is, of course, the same scenario that I made up in a third world context with the Elodia story, right, a, a right. West African, a fictional West African country that um, defaulted on all their foreign debts, instituted a land assessment policy and started collecting resource rents for public revenue. And this was a, a fictional what if scenario. But I think it was a fairly persuasive one. We had a sort of a deus ex machina to get the thing started in a military coup. But yeah. oh, well. Um, but anyway, it, it so the um, the refusal of nations to successfully, to sensibly um, adopt a public revenue policy based on resource rents kind of inverts everything, right? Uh, free trade, the European Union, should be a good thing for every country, but it didn't solve the underlying problems because. It, that in itself is only a symptom of the underlying problems. So the working people in Great Britain, the working people in Greece, right, in various places that are thinking nativist and thinking isolationist right, and right. thinking free trade is bad, um, they're seeing that all this globalization and all these free trade policies haven't helped us, haven't helped the working people. They've helped the robber that takes all that's left, well, basically. Well, George pointed done. that out completely. He said... Uh, so, so, so what Fred Harrison... Uh, his thesis in that book and my thesis in the Elodia book was that a, na a nation could, if they were to implement a sensible public resource policy, um, could invert the situation in which integration and trade benefits and say, look, we'll go it alone. We'll um, improve our domestic markets. We'll put our own people in the country to work by creating a prosperous economy that doesn't burden production with taxation. And will serve as, as the Old Testament puts it, a model to the nations, um, which is actually, you know, I talk about the Old Testament. In a lot of ways, that's what some of the laws in the Old Testament, the economic laws, uh, were designed apparently to do, to set up a primitive version of a just and prosperous economy in which the land resources, land rent, supports the community. And along with the Jubilee to cure it if it got out of hand. So exactly, yes. You know. But the um, but, but continuing on, uh, you know, we have a fiat money system today. We're creating unlimited credit. And if we just did a, a mind experiment, and it's occurring now, the banks, the government can, can create almost infinite credit, especially in the United States, which if you visualized in the hands of the bankers, could immediately be used to buy property with which to loan against and continue a cycle to the point where 
they essentially co-opt all the money. Now, uh, how, would you, uh, how would you operate a Georgia system in the context of a fiat money system, or would you not have a fiat money system and credit system because of the problems of essentially it could come in and just buy the properties, ad infinitum and pyramid them up to the point where incomes would be totally asymmetrical after some- Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I have a feeling that you and I might not completely see eye to eye on this. Um, to the best of my knowledge, there was a fiat money system in George's day, and the ability of banks to create money by loaning it was something that was widely practiced. Um, and the, I think Henry George understood that. He understood that that process was going on. Um, he supported the greenbacks um, against the, uh, you know, the coining of silver and right, gold. Right, right. But, uh, um, but I think that the folks who say that this was equally important to George or that logically or theoretically this is equally important to the public collection of land rent, I think that's a mistake. And, and I will say why. Explain, yeah. Uh, Explain that. As you just said, the availability of credit ratchets up the speculative real estate market, right? Mm -hmm. And so because land, to use a shorthand, because land is used as collateral for loans, as land is expected to appreciate, if land is collateral, then the amount of money available to borrow to buy land increases. And if the amount of money available to buy land increases, demand for land increases and the price goes up, which further increases the appreciation and you get a classic speculative bubble. Right. That's the, me the mechanism by that which that works. And I would argue that that at the root is the basic problem with the financial system, yeah. that if we didn't have that speculative bubble dynamic in place, then the capacity of banks to create money by loaning it wouldn't inherently be a problem for the economy. I agree with that. And the Georgian system and would take so that I away. Would, I would caution against, in our reform efforts, in our advocacy efforts, in our, in our you know, education, whatever, uh, the tendency, which I've heard among a number of uh, Georgists or fellow travelers, you know, the tendency to equate the money issue with the land issue in importance. And if we can't make progress on the land issue, at least we can make progress on the money issue because they're both very, very important. I'm very suspicious of that. And I think it's a blind alley. For I don't I don't I don't go along with that totally. I uh, because you could eat neatly cut that off by the, the Georgia's tax itself would start to pull back ever more tax on the speculation. So well, of I think, course, because so I think that would dampen, would, it would dampen yeah. itself out. There's no question. But the idea that uh, there's so much fun and so much money to be made the way things are, you know, keeps powerful people in the, in the game for of obfuscating just how deadly a, do, a Georgia's tax would be on that game. And, oh, uh, I think that's very true. I, I think that's very true. And I think it's incumbent on us to make those connections. Yeah. I totally agree with you there. So, um, but, you know, I mean, but, but I, I think it's important for us to understand the causes, to understand the causal links, because otherwise we start sounding like everybody else. And, and the, the distinctive importance of our message gets lost in the shuffle, which I think would be, would be unfortunate because no one else is proclaiming our message, really. Yeah, um, I agree with that. Although you see the Stiglitzes, many people are coming on board about rent seeking in general. And, you know, in other words, they're all putting their toe in that water because it's obvious that asset booming uh, is, is, as you said, is taking the place of doing real work. And, uh, and that's not saying this is an unbalancing uh, mechanism on, on the economy. So there's you know, there's an intuition that monopoly uh, is, is, is a real problem. The fact that the source of the greatest monopoly of all is the one we've always consistently argued for. And a tax on land would cut deeply, deeply into financial uh, speculation. But that's just the oh, point. Oh, I think, I think it definitely would. And I think it... Now, I can't say it would take away... Um, you know, minute by minute, second by second no, trades no. on the stock market by which people get rents. Wow. I'm not sure how fundamentally terrible a thing that is. Um, mm. There are certainly other forms of speculation which mm. you could argue don't really add to production. Yeah. 
and we might want to curtail at some point. But it still seems to me that it's important to, to emphasize that the land monopoly is the robber that takes all that is left. And if we want to fundamentally deal with the problem of progress and poverty and the problem of intractable boom-bust cycles, we've got to look at that root cause. We absolutely have to look at that first. If I may, uh, and so that's why, that's why I'm suspicious, I'm skeptical about this kind of fellow traveler bit about the money, the money monopoly, because I, I think that could lead us into some very questionable. Well, um, I, I know that I, that I, 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 I recognize it. And I recognize other forms of monopoly, as you know, but I've always held that the land and the resource monopoly is the sine qua non. You can't really create murderous monopoly without starting there. So it's only right. a question. And, and also, you know, I'm sorry, to, I interrupted yeah. you there. Without, without starting at that point, but go ahead. And also, you know, I think there is the structural aspect of it. I mean, the idea that land, as I said, is land is collateral for loans. Uh, land is expected to appreciate. The value keeps ratcheting up. That's an inherent part of the process any time that money is borrowed against land as collateral. Right. That's going to happen. Um, and that's a, that is just a fixed part of our system. I don't remember the amount of uh, current loans that are based on land as collateral, but it's a majority for sure. So over, um, over oh, close to 65, 70%. Yeah. And, and that's a tremendous unhealthy influence on our economy. Okay. You now, know? let me just give you a kind of a weak counterexample. If you look at Germany and you look at the percentage of home ownership that you have in Germany, it's relatively small relative to its, its industrial neighbors in the United States and so forth. Apparently there was a policy started back in Bismarck's time to suppress land rents by basically the state owning much of the land, leasing it out for housing and suppressing price appreciation. So if you look at Germany, you will see that it has nowhere near the house appreciation and real estate appreciation of its neighbors. And yet, because of that, you might argue, look at the industrial profit performance of Germany over long stretches of time. We won't talk about today. We've got a funny situation shaping up there. But essentially, we have these examples where you suppress... It's a good example. I'd like to know more about yeah, that. Yeah, if you take a look at that, you'll see that there's been a suppression. It's been a state suppression. It's been a hidden suppression. But you look at the home ownership figures and all of that, you'll see it's much lower. And yet they've always had the most dynamic industrial economy, which is the Georgist argument re really there. It's an indirect example. And I believe uh, Bismarck and the people who follow him had that intuition. They understood George. And, uh, and there's been a history of that. Germany is an unusual situation. And even China, although it's gone crazy, has basically been funding its growth and its industrialization by a wild leasing and selling of land. And the government yes, controlling yes, it. I mean, um, where that's going to go, I don't know, but they certainly took advantage of. The, and I, it sounds to me like they're taking huge risks. Well, but it's it's got because out of to control. the degree it's, that they're dependent on that appreciation. Yeah, that's I mean, the true. idea of having empty cities in yeah, China. Well, it's it's gone to extremes, but it shows you the latent power of the concept. And of course, I think we know that the ultimate bargaining chip in an economy is not capital. It's not labor. It's the land, it's geolocation. That takes Absolutely. first cut. And, you know, that reminds me, if I could just bring up Go something ahead. real quick here. Um, uh, and I didn't make this up, but I think it's a great idea. I think Mike Curtis was the one who brought it up first. A, a great research idea for us to try to, uh, to sell our idea would be to go to various areas, various jur jurisdictions, and say, okay, how much does it cost per year to hold a piece of land out of use in this area? Right. The thesis would be that the greater the cost, the greater the tax penalty or various other kinds of regulatory mm -hmm. penalties, maybe, I don't know, of holding land out of use, the more integrated and more prosperous that economy would be. And I think you can see that we could expect the correlation. Sure. And if I think if we wanted to quantify this effect, that might be a good place to good start. Point, How point. much does it cost to hold a piece of land out of use where you live? OK, well, also. Mike Curtis had another uh, good suggestion recently. Uh, uh, he argues, and I would agree with this, that of all the taxes that are collected in the United States, and just the United States, we use this typical country, 
uh, if you relieve those taxes, they would show up ultimately in land values. That essentially- Sure, that's another way of making the same point. Make, yeah, make the exactly. same point. And that is a powerful, powerful statement. The, the, the fact that you can get it cleanly without the dead weight of, uh, effects by taxing the land and resources as opposed to pushing it forward into incomes, sales taxes, all that, and misaligning incentives is another uh, another feature of the Georgia system if you can prove well, I, that, I think you've had a, an extreme example of that in California after yeah, Proposition yeah. 13. Not only were the property taxes capped at a very low rate, but the tax law uh, made it people not want to sell for a very long time because the new tax rate didn't kick in as long as they held the property. Right. And so California was starved of revenue and schools faltered Everything and the economy collapsed. faltered in various ways. And I mean, uh, I think the correlation there is evident to anybody who looks. So any other concepts you want to discuss or promulgate? I think we pretty well covered some of the uh, interesting points of, of the Georgia's philosophy. And I think we can agree, even though we're, we're believers, it's a pretty robust and powerful uh, philosophy. And it gets to the prime prime essence of economic development and, and in the economy itself. So any other comments, any other things that you might oh, want to? One other. Go ahead. Thank you, Andrew. I, it's been a good conversation. I'm glad we talked about theory instead of uh, movement politics. Yeah. That was good. But yeah. uh, I, um, one thing I wanted to point out just to talk about, see, maybe even get your opinion on is um, although politically the Georgist movement doesn't seem to be really anywhere at this juncture, it's certainly not in the United States. Um, in academia and conceptually, theoretically, I, I, my perception is that we're making some inroads. I mean, I think that Stiglitz has yes, said absolutely. lots of fundamental no, no. things about uh, the Georgia's reform. I think that the Henry George theorem is an accepted uh, part of the economic canon at this point. Uh, now, and I think that's very interesting because, you know, okay, if you can show that in a reasonably well-run city, the rent of land is is a sufficient amount of revenue to provide all the goods and services that city needs, then why in the world do we have cities taxing sales and wages? Yeah, good point. I mean, that just makes no sense. Um, so I think that there's, there's a little bit of a disconnect between what some people quietly are agreeing with, maybe in their journals and in their classrooms, and what is filtering out into well-connected political sphere of things. And that's unfortunate, and I'm not sure there's any way we can address that without, you know, building a popular movement or simply having publicizing it more or, you know, becoming going viral on the Internet or whatever we can do. But I think that there is a basis of support for us in academia right now that is a source of strength for us. I agree with that. One, one other question I'd have for you. You know, the, the question of externalities. You know, many of these corporations are not paying their fair share because pollution, you know, leaving the ground uh, in, 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 in a bad way, all of the things that they don't get charged for. Uh, if you tax that, do you think that's a significant amount of money, in your opinion, just intuitively? If you tax the bad, so to speak, just intuitively, I think it most definitely is, and I think that's a really important consideration. Um, I think that the externalities of um, of greenhouse pollution, for example, are, are gigantic, and people are beginning to be worried about climate change, and they're beginning to be willi willing to address them. Even a, a group of Republican senators, I think, recently has come up with a carbon tax proposal, a tax and dividend proposal, um, which is striking uh, and is at odds with the Trump administration, by the way, but that's good. Uh, I think that this is extremely important. I think that the logic of our Georgist worldview or analysis requires that we think of all of the natural opportunities, including the capacity of, say, the air and water to soak up our effluvia. And I think that it's to be consistent in our analysis, that has to be part of our program. It absolutely has to be. Now, 
one thing that I find very interesting about this and that some of my colleagues don't are not comfortable with is that since climate change is a global problem, an economic solution to climate change in terms of internalizing the economic externalities of that pollution has to some degree to be a global initiative. Yes, yes. And I think that that is an amazing opportunity for us. And it has struck me over the years that that's one of the reasons why um, conservatives who tend to be nationalists find the whole climate change theory so uh, literally unthinkable. Because it does, in fact, require a, gro a global solution. We have to start thinking in those terms. Um, I'm not uncomfortable with that. I know that okay. some people are. But I think that you're absolutely right that, that the, um, the value of our natural environment to sustainably keep us alive and to soak up our pollution is absolutely a natural opportunity that needs to be factored into our program and our analysis um, and we just have to think along those terms and there are opportunities for us I think to make common cause with a lot of people who do think that way beat this one up today uh, let's do it again new new ideas okay. new developments let's continue the dialogue I think it's great I mean I think we both know what ideals are you know uh, I'm, a, I'm I'm more of a general monopoly chaser, but I've never forgot the roots of that. Uh, and most of that would go away if we did in implement a Georgia system. So I think we're pretty much in agreement. Uh, my strategies would probably be a little different than yours because I want to make monopoly visible and attackable and not hideable and, and refutable. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.